One Hope Church. Amen, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We thank you for the state you've given to us, and we praise your holy name. We give you thanks that your salvation is great. It's clear. It's understandable. Um, it's by your grace and what you've done for us. So we do pray, Lord, as we can compel no one, that we would urge everyone um, to believe in your son Jesus and Jesus we thank you that you went to the cross for us and you paid for our many sins we thank you for your love and your sacrifice and this morning as we look into the word we pray that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit Father and that you would encourage us and help us to be um, just even more firm and, and deeper in our commitment to Strive to live lives that honor you. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So this morning, we're in 2 Samuel chapters 10 and 11. <clears throat> and um, we won't spend too much time in chapter 10, but it's like, it sets context for um, chapter 11. And um, it's, in, it's important for us to, to get context and to understand what's going on here. So in chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Now it happened afterwards that the king of the Ammonites died, and Han and his son became king in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent some of his servants to console him concerning his father. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the prince of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, do you think that David is honoring your father because he has sent consolers to you? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out, and overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips and sent them away. And when they told it to David, he sent to meet the men, for the men were greatly humiliated. And the king said, Stay at Jericho until your beards grow and then return. <clears throat> we'll stop there for a minute. Because um, this is a, a really interesting scene. When we look back at 1 Samuel chapter 11, uh, we'd be reminded that Nahash had surrounded Jabesh Gilead, and he was going to enslave the people from there, or kill them. And he said, you know, I'll, I'll make a treaty with you. You can come and be my servants under one condition that I get to take out all your right eyes. I'll leave you with your left eyes. But every one of you, I get to poke out your right eye. Um, and that's when the men of Jabesh Gilead, um, hey, I don't know what that one's for, but the men of Jabesh Gilead said, um, hey, let us send for help. If nobody returns and comes to help us in a few days, we'll come out to you. You'll do it as you wish. Sort of thing. And Nahash um, in his arrogance and wanting a greater victory, thought, well, you know, if these people come, I'm, I'm going to defeat them too. And if not, then I don't lose any men. So it's kind of a win-win for me, was his attitude. And we saw in that chapter that that was the highlight of Saul's life, really, um, when he rallied Israel and went and saved the people of Jabesh Gilead. That was before um, he had been disobedient to God and had fallen um, into sin and was unrepentant um, of his sin. And so that was a highlight of what um, Saul had done. So now we don't really um, have any, any great details about what happened later that apparently Nahash had done something um, to help David. Um, you know, which I think we have to remember, and even if, if you study, you know, history, if you study, you know, any period of history, um, you know, study medieval history, whatever it is, you find times where um, two groups of people are conflicting at one time, and then at another time, 
you know, they help each other and you're like, what happened? What changed? I mean, one example uh, from not that long ago would be, you know, considered during World War II when, um, you know, Russia was an ally of England and the United States. And Stalin, you have pictures with Stalin, Churchill, <laughs> Roosevelt, meeting together and working together to defeat a common enemy. And then we know what happens, you know, after the war. And then, you know, people who were friends are now no longer friends. And so that goes back and forth um, all the time. And so we shouldn't be, I guess, super um, surprised by that because, um, you know, situations with people and with nations are not static. You know, they're, they're dynamic. They change, right? So that's um, something that apparently had happened there and that David, you know, was helped. Um, and we don't know all of the motivations of Nahash. Maybe it was because, um, you know, that was a way to help David, which then, you know, David is in conflict with Saul. So, you know, there could be something to that. But we don't really have all of that spelled out. But what we have is that David feels obligated to show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, just as his father had showed kindness to him. And so he sends these people to um, console the son. Um, you know, imagine, like, like, like we do, what do you do when you're consoling someone in a loss like that? I mean, there's, you know, we send flowers, we send food, we send love and you know, those sorts of things, and, and you can imagine that sort of thing happening um, here. But when the men get there, the, the, um, those who are giving counsel to the son of Nahash, Hanun, those who are giving him counsel give him bad counsel. And they say David just really wants a reason um, or wants information. He is sending these people to spy, he's taking advantage of our, of our position. Um, Proverbs 12.5 The thoughts of the righteous are just, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. Proverbs 12.20 Deceit is in the heart of those who devise e evil, but counselors of peace have joy. So they're not looking for peace. They're looking for a way. These princes are actually looking for a way to stir up a conflict. And so they humiliate the servants of David. They shave off half of their beards and they cut their garments up in the middle to the hips. So they you know, expose them. They, they you know, humiliate them. Um, and, and that's a cultural um, thing as well. Even today you have different standards of um, what's acceptable in clothing. Right? Um, what's what is um, desired in a particular one culture is going to be different um, in, an, in another culture. Um, you know, it's one of those interesting things when we go to, to Mexico, unless it is actually um, a football, soccer match, you hardly, in the middle of summer, you hardly ever see a man wearing shorts. And, and even, think about the soccer deal, you know, so the shorts go down to almost the knee, and then the long socks and the shin guards come up almost to the knee. There's like, the knee is exposed, right? But you rarely, whether in the mountains or in the city or whatever, just see a dude walking down the street wearing shorts. Now for here, us, that's like no big deal. You talk to them about it, and they're like, you just kind of don't like seeing man's leg, men's legs. You know, I mean, I can't really blame them for that. But, you know, they're like, don't really like seeing a whole lot of man leg. You know, I mean, that's, that's, their, that's their take. I'm like, man, I wish we could just wear some shorts because it's summer. You know, I mean, we're up in the mountains, not as hot as it is here, but it's still warm. I mean, I'd like to wear some shorts, but goodness. Um, but, you know, there, there's a cultural difference there. Men in this culture are not going to voluntarily wear a Speedo. Not even like at the beach, you know. You say that's pretty extreme. Like, I mean, they would look at people like men, like voluntarily putting on speedos, going to the beach, and they'd be like, "That's a, that's that, we, we would never do that. That's strange. That's odd. That's odd." 
Um, but now we, in any culture, to shave off somebody's half their beard and to cut their garments, like they're not doing it voluntarily like as a fashion statement. It's not like they're putting holes in their jeans going like, these look cool. Like their garments are being cut in a way to intentionally humiliate. Like this is humiliating regardless of your culture. Because it's being done to them involuntarily. Like this is a humiliating act. And it is, by all accounts, a, a declaration of war. Like there is, like war in this situation is, is pretty much unavoidable unless, unless the, the Ammonites sent and begged for forgiveness and humiliated themselves. Like if the princes had done the same thing to themselves and gone you know, to Jerusalem and bowed down and said, forgive us, we have sinned greatly against you, like, we are sorry. War could be avoided in that situation, but with what's been done here, like, war is inevitable. And so, let's read what happens in verse 6. It said, now when the sons of Ammon saw that they had become odious to David, like, they smelled bad to him, Okay, we got that. Like they've gone odious to David. The sons of Ammon sent and hired the Arameans of Beth Rehob and the Arameans of Zoba, twenty thousand foot soldiers, and the king of Mekah with one thousand men, and the men of Tob with twelve thousand men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army, the mighty men. The sons of Ammon came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city, while the Arameans of Zoba and Rehob and the men of Tob and Mekah were by themselves in the field. So we see there's no repentance here. They just they saw that. Okay, we've really, we've crossed the line here. War's inevitable unless we, you know, do something. They don't, but they don't repent. You know, they don't go and beg for forgiveness. They double down. They double down to like, we, we know there's going to be a fight, so let's hire out another army. Let's hire out another army. And I'll just make one statement of that. If you can, I mean, throughout human history, one has to wonder... How many people have died in battle because a king went, yeah, I'll take that money to have our people go fight and die in battle. Where the people who are fighting and dying in battle don't get a whole lot for it. Like, it's kind of, like, it's not logical. It's just not logical. Like, you're going to fight somebody else's battle where you're likely to die. Like, there's a good chance of death, but you're going to get a few dollars. Like, it's not logical, but it happened and still happened all the time throughout human history. And again, it shows, it, it reveals something about the, the hearts of humans are bent towards violence. There's just a bend towards violence in the sinful human nature. There's not a bend towards peace. There's a bent towards violence without the work of God and the mercy of God and the teaching of the truth of, of God and of Scripture. Like, there's just a bend towards violence. So anyway, so they, David send out, sends out Joab and the others to fight. And it says in verse 9, Now when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front and in the rear, he selected from all the choice men of Israel and arrayed them against the Arameans. But the remainder of the people he placed in the hand of Abishai his brother, and he arrayed them against the sons of Ammon. And he said, If the Arminians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come to help you. Be strong, and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people, and for the cities of, of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the sons of Ammon saw the Arameans fled, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the sons of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. When the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together, and Hadadezer sent out and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river, and they came to Helam, and Shobah, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, led them. Now it was told David he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam and the Arameans arrayed themselves to meet David 
and fought against him. But the Arameans fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers of the Arameans and 40,000 horsemen, and struck down Shobak, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the kings, um, servants of Hadazazar, saw they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Arameans feared to help the sons of Ammon anymore. So we see what's happened there, and, and this is going to tie into the next chapter, but at this point, David has gotten to the point in his military career where he feels like he, had, he can trust Joab, and he can you know, trust Joab's leadership and command of the army, and that he could handle that situation that was presented to him. And that's going to be his downfall, you know, ultimately in the next chapter. Um, this sort of this complacency that he doesn't have to do it, he doesn't have to go out there with the people all the time anymore. Now he does go out once the Arameans go and send for reinforcements and bring, you know, all of their ability to the field. Then David goes out there, okay, now this is big enough for me to be involved. And then he goes out there and, and fights and, you know, they have, um, you know, a, a large victory. So, yeah, the, the Arameans have, have um, you know, they're, they're going to not help the sons of Ammon anymore. But that situation with Ammon isn't done. So apparently, if we pick up in verse chapter 11, it says, Then it happened in the spring at the times when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. So apparently, you know, winter had come, and so they couldn't finish the fight with the Ammonites. Okay, so again, there's context that brings us into, a lot of times when we're talking about, you know, this, this situation with David and his sin, which is our, our main theme for today, we just start in chapter 11, but what happens in chapter 10 has set the stage. And he should have been out there, because it's in the spring of the times when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. You know, he had done that once before, and, and now he's going to do it again. He's not going to go out until, you know, it's like absolutely necessary for him to go to the field. He's being a little bit lazy. He, he's a little bit forgetting his, his role um, as king. So, he, he becomes complacent. That's his first huge mistake. And then, in verse 2, things move very quickly. It says, Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. That's a lot to happen in verses 2 through 4. I mean, that's a whole lot going on there in a few verses. Um, you know, so, we have David... I mean, I, I think the thing about it is it's not wrong for him to go up on his rooftop and, and walk around. But he's there this particular time of year and in this particular situation because he's bored. You know? I mean, he's just... He's not where he's supposed to be. He's not with his, his men on a, you know, in a camp preparing for battle. He's in his palace where... Everything is easy for him. People bring him food, everything else. He doesn't, I mean, I, I, that's my take on it. You can disagree with it if you want, but my take on it is he's, he's got idle hands and he's bored. And so he's like, well, I'm going to go up on the rooftop. Now, in the winter, that wouldn't have been that big a deal, but, you know, weather's turned nice. And Bathsheba's up on her, her place. 
and she's bathing and he sees her. So then he inquires. Now this is where it really should have stopped. Because you could argue, I mean, I'm going to argue back from Genesis 1, you know, that one, you know, he already has a, he already has a, a wife at this point. Now he's already bro broken, you know, Genesis 1, and he already has more than one wife. So he's already crossed that bridge. So for him, yeah, in that context, that he's, you know, once, considering what he's already done, you can say, well, it wasn't that bad for him to inquire. Okay. But once he inquires and he finds out who it is, like, then it definitely should have stopped there. But this is where you have his, his mind is not on the things of God. His not, mind is not on the battle. Um, his mind is not where it's supposed to be. And so... Because of that, he's in a position to ab abuse his power, to abuse his position, and he sends f for, for her. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say here, in this part, like, Bathsheba is not guiltless. Bathsheba is not helpless. She was not forced to sin. He did not force himself on her. That is not what happens. And, and all the time people want to say, well, if two people are of different power levels, then it's like that excuses everything for the person that, doesn't ha that isn't in the place of power. We, we can't do that, folks. We can't do that. There, there may be different consequences. There may be difficulties that arise when power is not agreed with. But that doesn't give carte blanche to, to <coughs> sin and to disobey God. That doesn't say, well, we can just do whatever we want then. If she viewed herself as not having a choice, then she gravely miscalculated the situation. If that was her perspective, I don't have a choice here, he's the king. Well then, she greatly miscalculated the reality. She, she believed a lie. If that's what she believed, she believed a lie. She didn't have to go with the servant. She said, you could have sent this message back to David. Know my king, for I cannot disgrace the name of the Lord by doing this evil thing in his sight. Please do not disgrace yourself or my husband. She already knew all the stories about David. She knew how he would listen to reason as he had in the, there's at least a precedent, a history of him listening to reason. You can't say, well, he, David only listened to men, because that's not the history either. Remember Nabal's wife, Abigail. We're going to say that she didn't know that story? Come on. She knew that history. She has options. She is guilty of adultery. She is guilty of cheating on her husband. Like there, you, we fo the focus is on David's sin, and, and rightly so, but let's not forget her role and like, there's a lesson to be learned there from her and that and her failure okay so let's just call that what it what it is and not to pretend that this was just David's sin she's guilty very guilty
you imagine David getting that news. But at the same time, it's like, man, what do you think was going to happen? <laughs> you know, like, there's some, there's some odds there. Something, something would happen. So then verse 6. Now at this point, again, another opportunity for David to repent. But he's, he's, in, he's in there pretty, pretty deep now. He's, he's in a lot of sin. And this is what happens when people get in sin. It, until they hit rock bottom, they're usually going to continue in more sin. So David sent to Joab, said, Send me the Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people in the state of the war. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out, out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark of Israel, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters or in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. So we see, you know, what we obviously know what David's plan here is. Not maybe too much time has passed, and if David can get Uriah to go sleep with his wife, months later when there's a baby, maybe, oh, we just had a baby a little bit early. Maybe, get away, maybe still get away with this. Maybe Uriah won't figure it out. Maybe news about this won't get out to the, you know, out, won't, won't get out of the palace to all the people and have the embarrassment and shame of the sin being exposed. But you see the man of character, Uriah. And Uriah is listed um, as one of David's mighty men of valor. He was a mighty man of valor. We see that later in, in the book. And he's, I mean, and, and I think that this is intentionally recorded in the scripture again to teach us that a person didn't have to be Jewish in order to be right with God and in order to be a person of character and to be an order of person who feared God and who did the right thing. He was a Hittite. He wasn't an Israelite. And his first reason, the first word of why he wouldn't go to his wife is the ark. The ark. The symbol of worship for his God is in danger on a battlefield. And it's not a time for pleasantries. It's a time to be equipped for battle. It's a time to be serious about the things of God and the defense of the nation. It's not a time to go sleep with his wife. There's a time and a place. And Uriah said, this isn't the time 
This isn't the top. Think about that man's commitment to God. I mean, that's one of the huge things you can overlook in this story as the focus is on David's sin. But I want us to not just go negative here this morning, but, but to remember the, the, the passion and love that this man had for God. And we don't necessarily want that to be the case in the story, because we like David. We like David being hero. David defeats Goliath. David is a great warrior. David loves God. Like, David's our hero, right? Like, let's not mess up the hero. Let's not mess up the story of the hero. I mean, you could at least, can't we have Uriah, like, it was this arranged marriage thing, and poor Bathsheba got married off, you know, to this bad Hittite. And this Hittite deserved to die. And everything. Like, can't we make it like that? Just make it nice and clean? If you want, I mean, if you're writing fake history, if you're writing made up books, if you're going to um, whitewash everything, you know what Jesus says, you know, about the, you know, the Pharisees and the tombs, how they would whitewash the tombs, what's inside the tomb? Decay, rot, death. Make it look good on the outside, on the outside, but what's on the inside? It's what Jesus talked about, right? So we we still, if we're writing the story, if the people of Israel are writing the story and they're just writing themselves to in a way that makes themselves look good, because this isn't even a like really at this point. It's less of a prophetic book and more of a history book. I mean, there's prophecies, there's still prophecy and prophetic word, you know, in 2 Samuel, but a lot of this is just history. Okay? When, you know, we talk about the victors write history, and the victors a lot of times leave out the uncomfortable parts or the ugly parts of that history, or that they have. Or they justify their evil by dehumanizing the, the victims of their evil, right? You don't have that in the scripture. I mean, you read the entire Bible. Israel looks real bad a lot of times. Their leaders look real bad a lot of times. Like, if you're just making stuff up, you don't have 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's not there. It's, it's left out. It would be left out. If you're just making stuff up, you're going to leave that out. Why would you include the failure of a great man? Why would you include the failure of a national hero? But there's also an element, too, because I, I don't want it to sound like all other history doesn't include failures of, of people that are viewed as, as heroic because, and the reason for that is because is what God says is true, that things done in darkness are revealed in the light. You know, be, when I was a kid, you know, my mom used to say all the time, it took me a long time to figure out exactly what she meant by it, but she was like, you know, be sure you're, oh, I was a little slow, but be sure... <laughs> Be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. What that meant was, like, people think they get away with stuff or think that nobody's going to know. It's always, always somebody that knows. Now, whether they write it down in the history book or not, that's another story. But David's got written down in the history book that he messed up big time. And he tries to make things, quote-unquote, better. But he's dealing with a man that's more righteous at this point in his life than he is. That's the big problem. If Uriah had just been an ordinary dude, like mediocre in his, you know, like lukewarm or cold in his faith, David might have gotten away with this. 
but he happens to run into Uriah the Hittite who just happens to be a really righteous dude. And this is again the reality of the situation in this moment of life. Uriah is much closer to God than David is. It's just a reality. Uriah the Hittite is the man who fears God, who loves God, and isn't going to disgrace his God. And David's like, man, I got this guy. Because he, David, David probably thought, man, I could have gotten a thousand dudes. And 999 of them would have gone and slept with their wife. And I got you right the Hittite. 999 of them would have just done exactly what I had planned that they would do. And I got you right the Hittite. That's what I'm going to do now. Verse 14. I mean, and David too, I mean, again, it's like, I mean, he tried real hard. He didn't just try once. He's like, well, let me see if I can get him drunk. Maybe I can, maybe I can get him to do something if he's drunk. Even drunk, Uriah, more righteous than David. <laughs> Even drunk. In this scene, Uriah more righteous than David. That's rough. <laughs> Verse 14, Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and set it by the hand of Uriah. And he had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front of the line of the fierce battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was, as Joab kept watch on the city, that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab. And some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all of the events of the war, and he charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Drubasheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had said to tell him. The messenger said to David, The men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we Press them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it. And so encourage him. Now, stop there for a minute. So David enlists Joab in his sinful plot. Now we already know Joab is willing to, to cross lines. We already know Joab is willing to go further than he should when it comes to violence. But earlier there had been a distinction because David complained, you know, some of my people are like Joab, like too violent for me but now who's become like Joab David has see Joab doesn't have any qualms with it because Joab's like you know might be, be super happy about it because he'll lose a good soldier but at the same time his mentality is I've had reasons before Sure, David's got a reason. Just goes along with it. Just participates in the sin. 
And the thing about it is Uriah wasn't the only one who died unnecessarily. Like, people are going to die in this war. Like, there's no getting around that. Like, people die in war. But to intentionally sabotage yourself so that a particular person dies, and then not only that person, but there's some other people that are going to die as well because of that. Like, that's, that's some pretty low stuff right there. That's pretty low. Like, in battle, that's about as low as it gets when you die at the hands of your own potentially not friendly fire that's by accident, but friendly fire that's intentional. When you're, when you're risking life anyway, and people are just going to take it. It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. Um, there's one part there, that, you know, he's like, so when David gets angry and says this, just say all these things, I like how the messenger is like, I'm not going to wait for him to get angry. I'm just going to go ahead and throw it all kind of out there and Uriah the tight's dead too and kind of avoid the whole king getting angry at me thing because apparently Joab knows what I'm supposed to say here. It's kind of funny. I mean, in a certain sense of just messengers like, I'm going to cut to the key stuff here and avoid getting yelled at. <laughs> so he does. <coughs> Verse 26. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And there's some mixed things there. I'm not going to go too much into it, you know, how much did Bathsheba really mourn? She probably did. I mean, she probably felt really terrible about what she had done um, and had a lot of regret and remorse. I don't want to read too much into it because we're not told. The scripture doesn't tell us, and so you don't want to guess too much. But, you know, the scripture doesn't say you know, she mourned, she, she faked mourning for her. Uh, it just tells us she mourned. I mean, we're kind of left to our own conclusions about that. And then she goes in, I mean, David sends for her and she becomes his wife. And she probably felt at that point that that was her, like, best option, you know, of what, what to do. Um, now here's the thing about it and this is such a key verse but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord you know David didn't get a pass in how God viewed it because David had done so much good prior to that in his life David, you know God wasn't like well it wasn't that bad you know he doesn't get a pass is that God said it was, it was, I mean, the scripture says it was evil in the sight of God. It was evil in the sight of God. It displeased God. And that's important for us to remember because even as a, like, if you believe in Jesus, you're a child of God, when you sin, it displeases God. I mean, the scripture tells us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Like, we can still grieve God. We can still displease God as his people. Now, I'm going to put a line there. That Well, I'm not putting the line. The scripture puts the line. Remember, we're in a different economy, a different spiritual economy that David is under than what we have under Jesus in the New Covenant. Because people ask, like, was David saved? Like, or is David with God because he did these you know, terrible things? Well, David, again, was under a different system. All I can tell you today is what the scripture tells you. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 1 John 3.15. That's what the scripture says. It's not my opinion. My opinion doesn't matter. That's what the scripture says. The scripture says a person commits murder, they don't have eternal life in them. Now, it doesn't say a person who's committed murder can't repent 
and believe. Uh, certainly, a person who has committed murder can repent and believe in Jesus. We've, I mean, that happens. And the scripture certainly leaves an open door for that. But it doesn't leave a door open for a follower of Jesus to commit murder. The scripture just says, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. A, a person with the Holy Spirit of God can't do that. If a person does that, they don't have the Holy Spirit of God. They don't have eternal life dwelling in them. That's what the scripture teaches. And you can say, well, what about this case? Well, again, I just say, well, what the scripture says trumps what you think you know about a particular case. Now, to be very clear there, it doesn't say, um, and you know that no one who has killed has eternal life abiding in him. There's a distinction. And that has messed up a lot of people, so I'm just going to address it very quickly. But there's a difference between murder and killing. Murder always involves killing. But killing does not always involve murder. There's a difference. One of the... One of the most misunderstood things is that, you know, the, the translation of the Ten Commandments that leaves us with, thou shalt not kill. There's different words for killing and for murder. The much better translation is, thou shalt not murder. Um, so we have to remember that. There's a difference. Killing in self-defense, kill, killing in the defense of children, those are things we never want to do. But they're not murder. They're, they're different. Killing in warfare, when you're enlisted in an army and you're put onto a battlefield, that's different than murder. Murder always involves evil intention. Now, can a person on a battlefield commit murder? Absolutely. So we have to make a distinction between those things. If we don't, we'll come to the, we can come to wrong conclusions. And when, of course, you know, we have no desire to be part of, of any such thing. But sometimes our, our role, a person's role in protecting someone else, causes them to have to do something they don't want to do. But let's not call it a sin that it's not. You know, that's where you can get in, in trouble. At the same time, let's not pretend that a follower of Jesus can commit like that level of evil of premeditated murder. Like followers of Jesus don't do that. When, and, so, and so this is one of my things. When we're talking about how do you make a less violent society? You preach the gospel. Because when people come, become true followers of Jesus, they commit less grievous sin and they don't go around murdering people. We're in a less violent society, preach the gospel. Make disciples. James 1, 13 through 15, and this is the situation. Let no one, when he is tempted, say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. This is David, right? David up on the rooftop. He was tempted when he saw, but he still could have just walked away. But what happened? He was carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then lust, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished or when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. I mean, that's where that 2 Samuel 11, 
just matches this verse step by step. And you wonder if James even had that in mind as he wrote this, you know, like, here are the steps, step by step. This is what happens. Temptation carried away and enticed by lust. Lust is conceived, it brings to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And that's another distinction that we have to make because I find people many times they feel like they've sinned when they've only been tempted. Now there are certain temptations that are sins because if you put yourself intentionally in a position to be tempted, that is a sin. If David knew ahead of time, if I go up on that rooftop, there are going to be ladies up there taking baths and that's what I want to go see. Well, that is intention to sin, right? If he's up there walking around and had no idea what was going to happen and then sees, well, he hadn't sinned yet. He doesn't sin until he contemplates and desires and sins for. That's when he's actually sinned. Now, I don't know what he knew, but I, actually I kind of find it hard to believe that he would be up there not knowing what he would encounter or potentially would encounter. And we need not to play games with that. We all know what we're potentially weak with. And if, we know, if you know you're intentionally weak in a particular area of life, but yet you put yourself in a, that position where you, you know you're likely to be tempted, that's sinful. There's no getting around that. There's no getting around that. And what's sinful for one person in that may not be for somebody else. One person can go you know, to the bar and say, I'm going to the bar specifically to encourage some people I know there to believe in Jesus. And another person struggling with alcoholism say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the bar, but I'm not really going to do anything too bad. I'm, I'm going to go, but I'm not going to do anything. Well, the person who's prone to that sin is sinning when they walk in where the other person is not. Or the person who, I mean, you know, having a drink isn't a sin. So the person's like, well, I'm going to go to the bar with my friends and have one beer. That's not sinful. If the heart is right before God and there's not conviction that the person is doing something wrong, it's just not sinful. Don't call it sinful. But the person who knows they struggle and is intentionally putting themselves in that position to be tempted, that is sin. It's just, you know. Now I'm going to say this. When it comes to lust of the flesh, when it comes to human sexuality, I don't know anybody who's just like, well, I could be around all these beautiful people that I'm a, you know, don't bother me a bit. I mean, come on. Let's not, let's not pretend there, okay? I have a hard time buying that. We have to be wise and to be careful. But what's our best weapon? Our best weapon against sinning is to be on mission with Jesus. Your best weapon against sinning is not a strategy of, well, I'm just not going to sin. That's not going to work out very well. We say a lot of times the best defense is a good offense. I think that's the case when it comes to sin. Best defense is a good offense. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is if your mission is to worship Jesus, to tell people who don't know about him, about the good news of Jesus, and to make disciples, and you're striving to do that every day, then it's hard at the same time to be caught up in a bunch of sin. It's just hard at the same time to be caught up in a bunch of sin. But if you're not on mission, 
It's easy to get caught up in a bunch of sin. See, David had been out on the battlefield. He's not in a position to commit that sin because he's out where he's supposed to be, you know, leading the troops and, and doing what he's supposed to be doing as king. But because he wasn't on mission with his God and with Israel, he was wide open to failure. And I don't care what the sin is. I don't care if it's lust, gossip, you name it. It's easy to commit it if you're not on mission. But if you're on mission, it's hard to commit it. And so I think that a lot of times, I mean, yes, there are times we have a particular stronghold on a sin, and we've got to work, and we've got to set up you know, a plan, and those sort of things. Absolutely. But for just most of our stuff, like if you want to handle like the majority of sin in life, it's real simple. Be on mission. Like make it a goal every day to worship Jesus, to share the gospel with somebody, and to encourage a believer. If you set to do those three things every day, on the day, I mean, I, I challenge anybody. I challenge myself. I challenge any of us. Chart it. Chart it. Not as like a to-do list of like, I've got to do this to be right with God or something like that. But no, you want to run an experiment for a month. Put on the calendar. Worship Jesus at his feet. Share the gospel with one person. Encourage a believer in their walk with the Lord. Those three things. Worship involves a word, by the way. Okay. But those three things. And I guarantee you, if you charted that for a month, and you were consistent, you would be able to look and see the days that you did and the days that you didn't, and you would see a pattern. You would see a pattern of a greater victory on the days that you did. And especially when you had strings of days where you did versus when you didn't. The best defense against sin is to have a great offense. And that offense is to be on mission with Jesus. Spend time at his feet and to be on mission with him. That's the, that's the solution but the problem with it is, we know that that solution requires sacrifice. That's an all-in solution. And a lot of times we don't like the all-in solution. What we want, a lot of times I think about myself this way, we want a solution where we're not you know, messing up terribly, but we can just kind of do what we want to do and not be too extreme on the other side. But that's a recipe for disaster, because that's lukewarm, and Jesus doesn't like that. Last, I, last time I read in Revelation about lukewarmness, I found that Jesus did not like that a whole lot. So that's not a, that, that one doesn't work. But, man, test God on that. Be on mission with him in that way, and see what happens. If you want victory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you. And we thank you that your word is true and is good, and we thank you that these great failures, even by people who were your people, are given to us so that we learn from them. And Lord, also it gives us confidence that your word is true and it, we're not just been, being given a bunch of fluff stories. Lord, you know our human condition and that's why you will ultimately sent your son to the cross for us. And we give you thanks this morning as we take the bread and the cup and we remember the cost of our salvation, we recognize where we would be without you indwelling us, God.
without the constant indwelling of your Holy Spirit and the conviction of sin that you give to those who are truly yours. And Lord, that you you have saved us so that we would live in life, in abundant life, in joyful life, and in victory, and not so that we would continue to spiral in defeat. And so, Lord, I pray that as, a, as individuals, as a church, Lord, that you would help us to be on the offensive. That you would help us to be about what we're supposed to be about so that we wouldn't disgrace your name and sin against you. And so, Lord, we ask for your help. In your name, Jesus. Mm-hmm.